And welcome to the RAW podcast at Manchester Metropolitan University and to our 10th episode in our new mini-series. We're in double figures. In this episode, I'll be speaking to Monique Roffey about magical realism in contemporary fiction. We will cover the origins of the genre and its use by South American and Caribbean writers, the magic of the everyday in the Caribbean and how sometimes real life can be stranger than fiction and The Figure of the Mermaid, with a focus on Monique's newest novel, The Mermaid of Black Conch, published by Peepal Tree Press. So, let's get into it. Okay, so I'm here with Monique Roffey, and today we're talking about magical realism in contemporary fiction. Um, so welcome, Monique, to the podcast. Would you like to introduce yourself? Yes, um, I'm Monique Roffey. I am a writer I am born in the Caribbean, Trinidadian born, and I have, from the word go, really been writing magical realism um, from the first novel I ever wrote to my current novel. So I guess you could call me a magical realist. Well, you're the perfect person to talk to then. So, I mean, first of all, <laughs> what is magical realism? How would you kind of categorize it as a genre? Well, you see, it exists in the art world as well, not just in the literary world. And I think the first person to ever use these words was an art critic, a German art critic, back in the early 20th century. It was a critic called Franz Rowe, who was describing a movement in the art world at the time. And he was described it as a way of seeing and painting magic and the magical nature of the rational world. He was trying to sort of delineate it from surrealism. Not long after, the Cuban writer Alejo Carpentier also coined the phrase, the marvellous real, the merveilloso real. And he was sort of talking and hinting at exactly the same thing. So it's been a genre of literature that's been around for at least 100 years, first in the art world and then coming out of Cuba and the, and the, the Caribbean and the South American writers. What magical realists are really looking at is we're looking at the magic in the everyday, in the actual world. And the magic that I'm talking about has to do with everything from the esoteric to the occult, to the supernatural, myth, old stories, folklore, alchemy, astrology, pre-scientific ideas, other knowledge, magical knowledge. You mentioned there the kind of magical or fantastical elements in the genre so how does it differ then from straight-up fantasy? In fantasy fiction, you see writers creating a whole new world, a whole new set of ideas, a whole new set of principles. Whereas what magical realism, which is sometimes seen as a subgenre of fantasy, and what I do is something much more blurred. The big difference is, is I'm not actually inventing a whole new world for us or for my characters. There's enough magic in the real world to be noted. So, for example, what Carpentier was saying was that the history and the geography and the politics of the Caribbean, for example, and the South America is so extreme and it's such a polyglot and it's so global that it's actually in Europe seen as something fictional or magical. So a lot of Caribbean writers would say, you know, what happens every day in the, in the Caribbean might look extreme or it might look 
magical. It all sorts of things that happen, original, extreme things. I mean, you know, weather patterns, extreme heat, extreme storms, extreme politics, racial fusion. I'm not making things up. That's kind of where this realist element comes in because it seems strange at a kind of first glance that although it's kind of magical, it's fantastical, it plays with all those kind of elements, it's also realist, which can seem a bit paradoxical maybe. So could you maybe describe a little how the genre plays those two seemingly distinct elements in? So I'll just give you an example. I'll give you two examples of things that are real, that are true and that have happened to me and that I've seen with my own eyes. but they're also magic. So in Trinidad, we used to have a big lizard that used to climb up a tree. And it did this all the time. Inevitably, it would fall asleep. And then it would fall out of the tree. And more than once, it, it fell on my father's head. You know, 300 people get killed a year globally by falling coconuts. But how many people get killed by falling lizards? And then, of course, the lizard would fall and then the dogs would chase after it. And it would just be like a tremendous event that would happen in the back garden. And I'm not making that up. Um, another time, I have a vivid memory of, of being in a, in a traffic jam in Trinidad in the dry season. And I was sort of staring at some leaves. And as I was looking at these leaves, they just burst into flames. They just caught fire because it was so hot they exploded. I mean, that's just sort of every day in Trinidad that you see things burst into flames, you see animals fall out of trees, you see very extreme colours. Like in Trinidad, there's nothing's pale, nothing's pastel, everything is primary in its colour. So it's not a big leap if you put your imagination into the mix of what's already there. It's a blur. It's a blur between what's actually there and then what also presents if you look again. Truth is kind of stranger than fiction. I can imagine some of those things in in texts or in novels, you'd kind of read it and you'd be like, oh, that wouldn't happen in real life. But actually it, it does. And so that's kind of, I guess, the, the kind of juxtaposition between them. If you think about the age of enlightenment and the Renaissance, I mean, there was a huge experimental bulge, wasn't there, across the arts in the early 20th century. But I'm somebody who's really interested in all the knowledge, the other knowledge, that was discarded by the Age of Enlightenment, the rationalists, and of course the scientists. So I guess there's part of me that's just naturally, I I want to go back to the time before alchemy and astrology was discarded. How do you think they built the pyramids? You know, they built that because they understood the planets. They, you know, Stonehenge is a temple to read stars and the planets. And these monoliths, these, these temples, all over Europe, all over the world. There are incredible structures that we can't really explain. We know they have something to do with reading the stars. And yet astronomy is something that obviously has survived the Age of Enlightenment. But astrology, no. And I'm not prepared to give it up. I'm not prepared to give up a lot of things that were considered wisdom that have been discarded. For me, you know, all these things are part of my interests all lie in old old ideas and old stories. And you can definitely see that in your novels, including your novel, The Trist, which came out in 2017. Um, So as a writer then, why do you find magical realism to be a kind of interesting and useful genre to write into? My magical realism usually appears in the form of old stories, myths. So The Trist, for example, is basically reawakening the old story of Lilith and ideas around female sexuality being very split between the whore and the mother, which has manifest 
in our contemporary ideas around female sexuality. So, you know, the Trist is about a woman who's also split in her sexuality and hasn't integrated anything dark. So the Trist was born from my own experiences in my 30s. It took me about 15 years to write. I've written two sex books as a part of coming out as a sexually fully realized woman. And the Mermaid book is, again, it's about women. I was thinking as you were saying that, that our kind of cultural conceptions of women and female sexuality have kind of always been affected by kind of folklore or kind of religious stories and elements. So it definitely kind of makes sense when you're writing about female characters and female sexuality to bring in these magical realist elements to kind of make sense of the stories that we've we've told ourselves about how women should be or what is acceptable female sexuality. You mentioned that your novel, The Mermaid of Black Conch, and I was mm. wondering if you could say a bit more about that. Yeah, so The Mermaid of Black Conch is based on an ancient Taino myth about a young woman in a village and amongst her peers and elders, she seems to be way too charismatic and sexually alluring. But the legend tells us that Initially, she's disrupting the piece, basically, because she is so alluring and so just completely magnetic to men. And the women in the village can't keep their men away from her. They go to the goddess and they say, what are we going to do about this woman? And the goddess says, "Okay, I can get rid of her. The goddess gets a, a hurricane to take this woman away. And she turns the young woman into a mermaid and she casts them into the sea for eternity forever. And of course, you know, being an outsider and an outcast with her sexuality sealed up, I mean, it's the worst possible punishment. It's like, you're never going to have a lover because you're a fish. And so, you know, for me, that's all too much. It's all too exciting. I want to interfere. I want to intervene. And the final thing I want to say about mermaids is, is that they're everywhere. They've emerged from our collective unconscious. Everywhere in every ocean, in every river, there is a water goddess and a sea sprite and a fish woman. Really powerful, ambiguous emblems of female sexuality. The mermaid is definitely a very, very interesting figure. It's kind of sexualized, but almost kind of monstrous in a way. And maybe it is because it's kind of that sexualization is kind of like impossible to kind of tap into because of the kind of fishtail and, and everything like that. So where could listeners buy The Mermaid of Black Conch if they're interested? Well, I would like listeners to go straight to my publisher and buy direct. I'm published by Peepal Tree Press, P-E-E-P-A-L, Peepal Tree. You can find them online. And if you just go to Monique Roffey, you'll find where you can buy The Mermaid of Black Conch. Brilliant. Well, thank you, Monique, for joining us on the RA podcast. Thank you for having me, Lucy. It's lovely to see you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening. Don't forget to follow us on Twitter for future podcast updates. You can find us at MMU underscore RA. Tune back in soon for more episodes. This episode of the RAW podcast was produced, presented and edited by Lucy Simpson and mixed by Julian Holloway.